0: Hi, welcome to Wither the University. I'm Adam Elwanger. I'm very excited about my guest today. He's a former professor of anthropology at Boston University, served in many administrative positions in higher ed, including uh, provost. He's the author of many books, most recently, Wrath, America Enraged. And soon a new edition of his book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, will be published. He's also the author of countless articles and publications like the Wall Street Journal, National Review, and many more. My guest today is Peter Wood, uh, president of the National Association of Scholars. Welcome, Peter.
1: Uh, thanks for having me, Adam.
0: So I ask this of everybody. Tell me a little bit about your training. You're an anthropologist by training. Um, how did you uh, um, choose that field and and what interested you about it?
1: Um, I became an anthropologist because of a terrific undergraduate education in anthropology by an anthropologist named Wyatt McGaffey at Haverford College. Uh, From there, I went to the University of Rochester, uh, one of the outposts of uh, what's called British social anthropology in the US, or at least it was, it's it's closed. But uh, the uh, field of anthropology interested me for, I would say, purely intellectual reasons. It was a field that uh, addressed fundamental questions about what humans are and how they differ from one another and what our deepest commonalities are, despite the uh, cultural differences that manifest themselves around the world. Um, I set out to be a kind of comprehensive anthropologist. I wanted to know something about the whole world, and uh, I have spent much of my life just reading the the key works in ethnography from Africa, the New World, uh, Asia, Australia. Um, So uh, for the pains of that kind of education, um, I know a great deal about things which don't interest anybody at all anymore. The field of anthropology has largely imploded in the last generation, due to the kinds of uh, ideological mischief that has now uh, crept into almost every academic endeavor of uh, people are much more concerned about advancing their political agendas than on ac- acquiring or spreading uh, human knowledge. One of the, in my view, uh, great enterprises of the uh, whole Enlightenment era was the worldwide examination of ethnography, the the writing of uh, systematic, deeply, uh, based on deep inquiry into the nature of human societies and cultures. uh, All that has uh, created a a genuine library full of important insights that are at this point uh, largely forgotten, Uh, anthropologists today are never even introduced to that legacy because it's all tainted by the fact that much of it was written by uh white males or white females but at least not by indigenous peoples uh, producing their own accounts of themselves
0: that's very interesting so essentially you're saying that that sort of uh woke politics has almost laid waste to an entire discipline yes i am saying that
1: Uh, I'm in touch with a a fair number of anthropologists to this day. They spend at least the the kinds of people who I I associate with look back on anthropology with largely lamentation that uh, this is a great field laid waste. Uh, It has important things to teach, but to teach them you have to find some way around the cartel of the university, which is only concerned about overcoming uh, racism, sexism, colonialism, the other anathemas of the
0: moment. You see something very similar happening in classics right now, a field that's kind of tearing itself apart because uh, the younger scholars in the field, I think many of them uh, uh, cannot come to grips with the inherently Western um, nature of of study in that field. Um, It's a real tragedy. So how did you make the decision to move out of your current position or your older position as a professor or administrator and into your current position at National Association of Scholars, um, which is um, kind of a watchdog organization and also an advocacy um, uh, organization? Well, I spent much of
1: my career at Boston University, which back in the day was known for its uh, uh, President John Silber, who was a a maverick figure, a a liberal Democrat, but one who hated political correctness and held uh, up for academic standards in a pretty strict way. Um, After I finished my PhD, I was recruited by the provost at Boston University, a man named John Wesley, to be his assistant. And I found myself plunged into a kind of second liberal arts education. But what Wesley expected of me was the ability to pay attention to everything that was going on in the university and and to write about it, sometimes for him, sometimes for myself. Uh, While I was still teaching in the anthropology department, uh, I became uh, a a recruit to the effort to uphold academic standards in a university that was fighting the good fight. Boston University at the time was uh, no exception to the general rule in higher education. The left was on the march. And to uphold academic standards meant being informed about and capable of responding in a meaningful and thoughtful way to the arguments that the left was making. That was something I never had to do in graduate school as an anthropologist. Uh, The left then was just sort of the smog that existed around me. Though I wasn't attracted to it, uh, I never had to think too much about it. But once I was recruited into the lower ranks of central administration in the university, I did have to think about it. One of my uh, uh, very early assignments came when a a professor, uh, actually an assistant professor of theology at the university had been non reappointed. And uh, she had responded by uh, creating a national campaign Uh, Boston University was founded by Methodists. It has a Methodist seminary still associated with it. And suddenly, the central administration was receiving hundreds. It may have been thousands of letters from Methodist activists all across the country uh, testifying to how great this young professor was and why we should reappoint her. Well, the lesson that I learned here was that First of all, Silber, the president, and Wesleyan, the uh, provost, said, we answer everybody, no matter what they say. If it's it's at least not profanity, uh, you sit down and analyze the arguments, and you respond thoughtfully, carefully, and truthfully. So I had to immerse myself in Elizabeth Bettenhausen's writings, such as they were, master those, and then respond not with form letters, but with individual letters every single one of these uh, complaints that had come in from around the country. And that, that was in my first few months working in the administration. And the task changed me. Uh, for one thing, uh, I began to see how the academic left organizes itself as a kind of mob that is meant to means to get its way by sheer intimidation. Um, and I saw that the answer to that was not going to be a simple uh, uh, waving it away or ignoring it, but it would mean uh, understanding what the arguments were and being able to respond to them. Well, as the years went on, um, I, I did a lot of that. And I ended up, uh, by the time, uh, let see, well, Wesleyan eventually became Silber's successor as president of the university. I became chief of staff to Wesleyan associate provost by that point. Um, I had spent 20 some years, uh, as I suppose what we would now call a culture warrior, but it was a culture warrior who was trained to be on the front lines, never assuming a position, but always arguing a position. Um, After 9-11, things changed. Boston University, you know, some of the flights that uh, hit the World Trade Center originated in Boston. There were Boston University students and faculty members on those flights. Uh, the uh, commencement the following year was a somber affair, we're dedicated as a memorial to that. Something sort of faltered in the university at that point, I would say. Of uh, Westling resigned quite abruptly soon after that uh, commencement ceremony. um, My whole administration was basically displaced, and uh, I went back to teach in the anthropology department. But after 20 years of being primarily an administrator, I realized that I had not really developed very much as an anthropologist, the courses that I could teach were the uh, sort of the bread and butter courses for classic anthropology. I could teach kinship, and the anthropology department was grateful that it had a specialist who do the technical world of kinship. I taught the graduate students the core courses in the history of anthropology, where all that ethnography I had absorbed became useful for a while. But I had not gone back into the field to do further research. I had not been writing books on anthropology. And it, it was dawning on me that the rest of my career was going to be spent doing something for which I was no longer deeply qualified. I would have to reinvent myself. Uh, at, the, at around the same time, the chairman of the board of the King's College, a small start up Evangelical College, then located in the Empire State Building, uh, paid me a visit, and invited me to become the provost of this college. Uh, I was resistant to that idea. I didn't see myself as fitting into that world particularly well. Uh, But uh, the offer came with some uh, really attractive features. Uh, He needed to hire a larger faculty Wanted to develop a rigorous curriculum based on the Oxford Politics, Philosophy, and Economics model, uh, and I would have a free hand to do all of this. Well, that's kind of unheard of in higher education to be able to hire a faculty and develop a new curriculum. Um, he also had ambitions to make this college a academically rigorous place, and uh, I was aware that the students who were already there, probably weren't going to be especially able to rise to the demands of such a curriculum. I warned him that that would be the case. But he said, go ahead, we'll stand behind you. So I I went there in uh, 2005. Uh, My first year was just terrific. I I was able to do the things that I was invited to do. Uh, The year, however, ended with, I think it was 46% of the students who were there transferred out. They weren't able to deal with the no-grade inflation, highly demanding curriculum. Uh, The 54% who remained were just on fire. This was a a dream for them to get that kind of education. The faculty were uh, elated as well. This was an opportunity that they enjoyed. But I was getting friction right away, of course, from the the money managers at the college and the members of the board who thought that uh, an attrition rate like that uh, could not be sustained. Well, of course, it couldn't be sustained. I wasn't up to eradicating the whole student body. Um, But it had to be maintained. That is, you you don't uh, whipsaw to a demanding curriculum based on Oxford standards. Uh, and uh, then go back the next year to uh, sandbox education. Uh, but that's what the board wanted to do. And I was getting pressure to uh, change the grades of students, uh, to elevate them. Uh, it was absolutely anathema to me. So after taking that for six or seven months, I said, okay, well, you know, you lived up to your word for the first year, but you're not now, so uh, I'll finish this year and I'm I'm gone. Uh, Having worked for John Silver at Boston University uh, and then having gone to an evangelical college, I rightly drew the conclusion that my academic career was completely over. I would never get another job uh, in higher education. Um, I had sufficient financial means that I was just ready to retire. Uh, go to my house in Vermont, and enjoy my library and my life as an independent scholar. But before I could get out the door, uh, Steve Balsh, the president of the National Association of Scholars, the founder of the organization, uh, and with whom I was on pretty good terms, called me up and said he was getting ready to retire and might I want to be his successor. Well, uh, with nothing much else to do, I said, yeah, sure. I'll give it a try. And that's how I ended up at uh, NAS. Uh, it was uh, uh, you know, just before the crash of uh, 2018. Um, suddenly, the National Association of Scholars' main lines of support from uh, foundations Uh, disappeared or dried up uh, and the organization was in financial crisis. So uh, I officially became president of it in January of 2009 and was faced with an organization that uh, probably did not have the financial strength to survive more than another year or two. Um, I had to reinvent NAS at that point. Uh, Reinventing it meant that for the first time it had to Uh, develop its own fundraising capacity. But most of all, it had to remodel itself. Uh, We had been, I'd say, a fairly quiet behind the scenes organization for uh, preceding 15 years or so. I needed to put us on the map. I had uh, uh, done Google searches and things like that and found we hadn't been mentioned in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the mainstream press for over a decade, and uh, that had to change, and I had to find ways in which we would be an attractive destination for new kinds of financial support. Basically, that meant changing us to an organization that did sponsored research. So uh, that that's what happened. So in the the, uh, the years since two thousand. Uh, I've remade NAS into a body that I think is now primarily known for its in-depth research reports. Uh, Research on what? Well, I figured our way in was to find the problems in higher education that no one else was addressing and go into those with actual scholarly depth produce the sorts of reports that could withstand scrutiny, not just from people who were skeptical, but from people who were hostile. And then to stay with those things, not as once and done and off we go to something else, but we would go into a topic, go deep and stay long. And uh, that has been what we have been doing during this period. We can talk about what some of those projects were, but that's how I came to be where I am uh, There's a lot to respond to there. Uh,
0: One thing that fascinates me is uh, Rochester, New York is my hometown. And you said that in your time in Rochester, you didn't feel like leftism was kind of, you know, as present as it is um, in the university today. That surprises me because U of R uh, sort of fancies itself as University of Rochester, kind of fancies itself as kind of a, a junior Ivy, and the the sort of um, the the social set that they move around uh, with in Rochester sees itself as kind of very cosmopolitan and uh, and downstate New York, um, mm-hmm. uh, unlike the uh, the hoi polloi of. Uh, the Genesee River rats that are around the rest of the city. Um, but was it really like that back then? Was it? Did you feel like it really was sort of a different cultural experience in the university at that time?
1: Well, remember, I wasn't there to study the university. I was there in the anthropology department, which was a, a small outfit of mostly British trained anthropologists who were somewhat marginalized on the American anthropological scene themselves. Uh, Christopher Lash was still there. And so there there were figures of uh, uh, high standing on the American left who were on campus. And I knew about them, but um, that just wasn't the world that I lived in. I was uh, studying anthropology, and the, the cultural milieu of the university didn't... Uh, reached me very much. I can think of some exceptions to that. Uh, Phyllis Schlafly was invited by I don't know whom to come and give a talk at uh, Rochester. And uh, I went to that with my then wife and so did a a large clack of feminists, I guess. So uh, (laughs) when Phyllis began to speak they began to stamp on the floor in uh, unison uh, so loudly that she was unable to speak at all. Um, well, that sort of thing is now uh, pretty common in higher education, of course. But it was my first experience of an actual, well, not a shout down, but a stomp down of a, uh, uh, of a speaker. Um, and I, I was just appalled. Uh, then um, uh, it wasn't long after that you know, going to movie series held at the university and uh, went to one of them it was so, so naive at the time the movie that was being shown was titled uh it was behind the green door it turned out to be a, a porno movie uh, and uh
0: yeah. how progressive
1: i i walked out but i was in this was not what I expected at the University of Rochester. Uh, so you know at that point, I, I really just uh, sheltered in place. I had enough to do as an anthropologist that I wasn't going to mix myself up with a, a university that, at least at the undergraduate level, struck me as uh, slightly demented. Uh, but whether that was because of its left-wing politics I couldn't say. It just didn't interest me.
0: I should also say that, uh, I, that I have a lot of respect for the old Boston, pre-911 Boston University, in part because they rejected my application for undergraduate study. <laughs> um, but uh, I so NES today has, a, a, I think, a bigger presence than it ever has um, in, in sort of the academic world. I think its reputation... Um, among uh, scholars like me, is, is very high, I think, of, uh, of the sort of campus left. Um, uh, they either pretend not to know about it or express uh, disdain for it, uh, in part because of its commitment to upholding standards. Um, and we were talking before, and I, I suggested that, that standards have now completely collapsed, and and you agreed, I think. And so um, where do we go from there? I mean, there used to be some standards that we could try to kind of push back up, but once they're on the floor, I mean, how do you proceed?
1: Well, of course, I have conversations like this all the time with the members of the association, about 4,000 of them around the country, um, as well as reporters and other people who were was concerned about where to send their children to college. There's no simple answer to this, of course. There are a handful of colleges. Uh, The two that everyone seems to know are Hillsdale and Grove City, but there's there's other places. Uh, The University of Dallas, for example, tracks some um, that are throwbacks that try to maintain something like a traditional curriculum, where they actually do maintain it. There are also a bunch of startups now, like uh, Ralston College in uh, uh, South Carolina, and uh, the the recently created uh, University of Houston. Uh, Hasn't opened its doors yet, but this idea of starting. Austin, sorry. You're in Houston. The startups, of course, have a pretty steep hill to climb to prove themselves capable. They will face the usual problems of trying to get accreditation when the accreditation standards are now all perverted to uh, the DEI agenda as well. Uh, There is no uh, clear path out of this. NAS was founded... the spirit of being an organization that could lift things back up, as you put it, Uh, back when we uh, were officially founded in 1987, uh, there was a a mistaken hypothesis, which was that the march of the left through the institutions could be halted simply by gathering together the the gray-haired professors who knew better and who could use their intellectual authority to say, uh, don't ruin a a good thing. Well, uh, we gathered together a lot of those gray-haired professors. They soon retired, and the university was inherited by uh, what Roger Kimball called the tenured radicals, uh, who, unlike their liberal uh, predecessors, didn't see a need to hold the door open for people who disagreed with them. The, the old idea that the university could be uh, a place open to all points of view got replaced by a radical uh, group that thought that uh, why, why let in people who teach the wrong thing, we will just let our own in.
0: So do you do you feel like because there, there was that sort of liberal professorate that existed and then was displaced by the the tenured radicals and I would say this was kind of occurring maybe in the the eighties seventies uh, and eighties and I feel like we're at a point now where most of that generation of professors have now retired like the the early baby boom generation right and and now it's kind of I'm forty going to be 44 soon and i think it's people my age and within sort of 10 years of me that are taking over and i think that they're even further to the left and less tolerant of of different viewpoints um i mean do, do, do you see that too do you think that or do you think that the it that it hasn't moved further left since where where it was in the 80s or 90s well i think
1: it has moved further left and the the external manifestation of that is this uh, the readiness to call the expression of views that you don't like violence the readiness to embrace an ethic of uh, uh, censorship limiting intellectual debate to just intramural feuds on the left and and even then some of those get cancelled uh, the uh, adoption among students of an ethic of safety, safetyism, as Greg Lupionov uh this uh, world of the university has become a place where it is considerably less tolerant than the uh, public square. You, you can get deeper intellectual arguments at the barbershop, not that I go to barbershops, but uh, the uh, uh, the readiness of people to put out provocative arguments and see where they lead uh, has disappeared from the lecture hall. It does doesn't barely exist at all in the uh, seminar room either, where one would think that uh, uh, producing an argument and sustaining it in the in the teeth of uh, those who disagree would be just the natural thing to do. Uh, so. That's, that's new, or relatively new. Uh, now, when I saw Phyllis Shafley stomp down, that would have been uh, around uh, 1978 or 79, uh, it was uh, a horrid thing, but completely new to me. I'd gone to an ultra-liberal undergraduate college, Haverford, but I'd never seen anything like that. Uh, and and here it was. But Nowadays, uh, I'd say most colleges would be embarrassed if they didn't uh, uh, disinvite, shout down uh, speakers that they didn't like. Uh, Middlebury College was uh, not really embarrassed when the students uh, basically rioted to prevent uh, Charles Murray from speaking. Apologies for Heather McDonald being silenced at uh, uh, Claremont. No, the the president of the place was basically okay with that. They made some amends. They allowed her to speak to an empty auditorium. Um, But there are so many of these now that it's just a a routine matter that uh, the ethic of Intellectual exchange as the medium through which students will learn the arts of debate and critical thinking is all but extinct. Uh, The phrases are not extinct. Uh, Colleges and universities love to call themselves uh, uh, places where critical thinking is paramount, but uh, the definition of critical thinking has changed from being uh, critical of one's own Premises and willing to investigate them to uh, being uh, disdainful of anything that comes by means of the authority of tradition in America or Western culture. So it's using the word critical in the uh, way that uh, Marcuse or the Frankfurt School would use the term that is uh, critical as a synonym for uh, I hate the West.
0: So I'm I'm coming to grips right now with a discovery that you made some time ago. You said that you realized at a certain point that your academic career was was over. Um I'm a full professor right now, but it, it recently it recently clicked with me that I can't get another academic job at this point. Right. If I were, I mean, maybe at Hillsdale, if a position opened up in rhetoric, I might have a shot. I don't know, but but essentially any other English department in the country, upon receiving an application from me, a simple Google search would immediately disqualify me from, from uh, joining the faculty. Um, and I think that this is, pro- this is probably the case with, with almost anyone who expresses any sort of, any professor who expresses openly expresses dissenting viewpoints um, from sort of the culture of the academic left. And so I wonder, I think a lot of time about like, well, what do we do with this, right? Do we leave, right? And, 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 um, and work on building alternative structures for, for transmission of the tradition, right? Outside the university, or do we hang on because the university needs people within it who will, will adapt critical thinking in the old mode. I mean, what do you think, what should be done? Should people who are 40 years old in the university and who have this realization that, you know, for all practical purposes, I'm just a a voice uh, crying in the wilderness. um, Should we stay in the university or should we leave and try to develop alternative structures for education?
1: For the time being, you should stay. It's, it's your solemn duty to uphold that torch of uh, knowledge and learning while you can. Uh, I left when it was clear I had nowhere else to go to, uh, but um, and I had a- already made my perhaps foolish decision to resign a tenured position at a research university. But um, I don't really regret that. I clearly was not in the right place uh, And I think there will be faculty members, positioned as you are, who do reach the conclusion that it's insufferable, that uh, I can't uh, continue doing my job in a meaningful way, uh, given the uh, being undercut day in and day out by my departmental colleagues or the administrators of my university. I can't bear to sign that Diversity manifesto that the university is shoving down my throat. There are reasons to leave, and I respect those reasons. I'm hoping that some of you take you you as the uh, uh, representative of uh, a body of people that I I can't see right now, uh, that uh, you'll stick it out. Now, I know others who have uh, taken early retirement or Uh, just plain quit, uh, have gone on to try to do things like uh, create their own. uh, They're not colleges. They're just sort of programs where uh, I will teach those who want to come to me to learn. And some of them are doing a a really good job at that. But it's a a micro market. If you can find a a dozen students a year who want to study with you as your tutor, well, you're not going to make a living doing that. Uh, maybe you have to go bag groceries to support your uh, effort at that point. But um, it's a uh, it's a dismal set of choices. It kind of returns the scholar to what scholars were maybe in the, the 18th century. Uh, is that you, you might, if you're an exceptional uh, voice, uh, a Rousseau or something, be able to. Uh, establish yourself as a, a presence on the larger cultural scene. For the most part, though, leaving the university means uh, accepting obscurity as the, uh, the the consequence of that choice. Uh, I was ready to accept obscurity, I although I had a tiny public profile as an essayist writing in public places, but that wasn't going to be enough to support myself. I had to just rely on my own resources for that. Uh, The the world that we face is one in which I think dramatic change is possible, not in anything like a near term, like four or five years. But uh, if you're sticking it out still in 10 years, maybe things will be different. Now, you happen to be in Texas where I think it's the Lieutenant Governor is uh, floating the idea of uh, eliminating tenure altogether. Uh, uh, NAS has been proposing ideas in the form of model state legislation aimed at combating the, the reign of terror that we call the diversity equity inclusion model, uh, which is as anti-intellectual and as destructive to traditional academic values as anything I could ever imagine. Um, in some states, in Texas, maybe one of them, uh, those ideas may advance. Uh, advancing the ideas, even in the form of legislation, isn't going to change the universities overnight. They are, they've institutionalized their bad faith uh, so deep uh, that it would take certainly a decade to uproot it. What about those uh, more than 50% of the salaried employees of American universities are now in administrative positions. Good side of that is that they can be defunded and sent on their way. Bad side of it is that they've had quite a bit of time to uh, fortify their positions and make it difficult to get rid of them. Uh, Faculty members, my hunch about this is that There's quite a few faculty members who deeply dislike having been marshaled into uh, doing whatever the Red Guard tells them to do. Um, But they are risk averse, and they don't want to fight it directly. Uh, If they found themselves with robust support on the political side and from the general public, they might step up. but it'll take a while to convince them to do it. And then there is this tenure issue. Even if you eliminate tenure, that doesn't mean that people are going to go flooding out the doors. Anybody who has uh, uh, build an academic career uh, on the basis of trying to discredit their own discipline, whether it's uh, math, which now has ethno-mathematics, and, or physics, or the social sciences, or the humanities, all of those people lack even the most rudimentary skills of being able to uh, master and teach the core discipline that they uh, purport to be part of. Where are they going to go if they leave the university? Uh, they're unemployable. Um, so they won't leave. <laughs> and if they won't leave, that means that yet another generation of students is going to be direly miseducated by people who see their job as uh, propagating left-wing orthodoxy uh, or promoting what they think of as social justice, that passing on to students the arts of inquiry, the discipline of uh, uh, seeking knowledge through a genuinely critical path of examination of evidence and arguments and, and logic um, let alone preparing students to be active participants in a uh, self-governing republic.
0: I will say that there are. I do see occasional surprising glimmers of hope. Um, for example, in a faculty meeting recently, um, we were being told that that um, the the Uh, principles of dei required that we diversify our syllabus and of course by diversify what they mean is make sure that there's not too many men not too many white people not too many this and that and a medievalist uh that i work with um who is uh very much a person of the left was the first one to say well look if we do that i can't really teach what i teach Mm -hmm. um and the same was true for me. And there's been a few other instances where I, I think you're right. I think that even the people who are devoted to sort of left ideology do not like the DEI um, administrative element. They, they're on board with the cultural program. What they don't like is the administrative infringement on, on how they do what they do. I call our DEI office the Ministry of Love. Um, but uh, you, you mentioned tenure. And in Texas, you know, uh, I, I do, I'm not optimistic that Dan Patrick's idea is going to get traction. But even if it did, I, I think it's a bad thing. And the reason I think it's a bad thing is if we move to a contract-based you know, employment uh, regimen, where uh, professors get a five-year contract or whatever uh, who's going to get the contracts right and who's not and I suspect that as long as sort of the campus left is what it is it's going to be guys like me whose contracts are not renewed um, and so I'm I, I get the impulse on the right to do away with tenure on the idea that this is going to sort of break up the, the leftist hegemony of of higher ed. But I also think that it actually might might strengthen it. I mean, what do you think about that? Should, what's NAS's position on tenure? Um,
1: well, um, for a long time, I've tried to avoid taking a position on this because NAS's membership is uh, closely divided on, on the matter. And uh, I recently uh, posted to our website, a position paper that uh, uh, rehearses the arguments on both sides. Uh, I guess my answer would be, go read the paper, but uh, where I, I, don't, I, I don't think tenure works very well anymore. It does. But I'm very alert to the reality that uh, eliminating it would produce very dire consequences for the remnant of uh, traditional minded professors in in all fields. So uh, uh, a cold turkey uh, uh, let's just abolish it and move on approach I don't think will work.
0: Okay so one thing you also mentioned when you were talking about sort of um, people sort of making up schools with 12 students that they tutor outside that traditional thing, it links up to something that you were talking about earlier, which is accreditation. Um, and this seems to be the major uh, roadblock to a- any, uh, any innovation um, in terms of how education is structured in part, because accreditation is the, the stamp of approval for federal uh, student loan access and this sort of, of thing. Um, I wonder, you interested me where you said that accreditation, the accreditation process has been compromised by DEI now. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and then maybe give your thoughts on how the, the whole issue of accreditation could be sidestepped or circumvented.
1: Right, well, that's another complicated conversation. Let me, let me start by saying, Back in my Boston University days, I was very much involved with the the regional accreditation process. That's for those who aren't insiders in higher education. Every 10 years, an institution has to go through a thorough accreditation review. Every five years in between, it has uh, an interim report. And then it does very minor updates during the course of the year. There are seven regional accreditors in the country. Uh, they are, in theory, independent bodies, but they get their authority to serve as accreditors via a, uh, a sub-agency of the Department of Education with a complicated acronym pronounced the uh, they're in, in addition to those seven regional accreditors, accredi- there are myriad specialized accreditors, uh, the most famous probably being the the ABA for law schools, but but every discipline has its own accreditor. And uh, the specialized accreditors tend to be even more putrid than the regional accreditors are. Uh, The way accreditation works at at the regional level uh, is that uh, I think all all the accreditors say this, they're, they're mission driven. So they will look at the mission of the institution, and then they'll judge whether you're living up to your mission. Uh, Colleges and universities in the last few years has been really a recent change, have amended their missions. Many of them now say our mission is to promote uh, anti-racism or social equity or things like that. And the accreditors are rubbing their hands and ha, now we have something. So uh, if your university says its mission is to uh, advance, Uh, Ibram X. Kendi's uh, latest book, uh, you'll be in a whole lot of trouble if that book isn't showing up on the general education requirements for the joint. And uh, uh, the accreditors in principle are associations of the component universities. So they hold an annual convention and they vote on what their uh, new standards are going to be. Uh, I worked with the New England Association of Schools and Colleges and the Middle States Association when I was at the King's College. Um, So a lot of familiarity with these things. Uh, Back in the day, NAS fought a big fight with Middle States when in 1990, it attempted to impose a diversity standard. Um, And we, we prevailed. We got Lamar Alexander, who was then Secretary of Education to tell middle states it would lose its power of accreditation if it didn't back down. And lo and behold, it backed down. Well, you know, those were the good old days when we were just fighting over a diversity standard. Nowadays, uh, there is no resistance. The regional accreditors have, uh, to my knowledge, every single one of them decided that uh, racial justice is job number one, and that that meets no resistance at all. There's no Boston University around to tell them uh, uh, we're not going to go along with that. Uh, There is a Boston University around, but it's not saying that. That's where Ibram X. Kendi is now a full professor. Uh, So we are uh, faced with a situation where the left has done what it's really good at, which is uh, aligning the parts of the the institutions to... uh, uh, Support one another. It's like a house of cards. Everything is nicely leaning into one another to make sure that there's there's no gap. So they control the Department of Education. They control Nasique. They control the regional accreditors, the body of regional accreditors uh, convening together, form an organization called Chia. They can control Chia, uh, and and they're working with universities which are just open doors for the left's agenda. Since uh, uh, the George Floyd riots in the summer of 2020, uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of college presidents uh, came right out and said, yeah, we were shamed by our past and we now want to be anti-racist institutions. And one of the earliest steps was to be sure that your uh, mission statement aligned with that. So but you're asking the question, is there Is there an end run around this? Is there a way out of it? Um, And I've been in conversations with my staff over this. One of my staff members has the idea that uh, you could get a a number of states together to say that um, we're not going to accept the work of the regional accreditors. We want one of our own, and we're going to uh, at least remand that the Uh, state universities in our states uh, go to this new accreditor that is not DEI-infected. Nobody's taken us up on that, but as a thought experiment, might that work? Well, it might. Uh, It would certainly depend on getting your newfound accreditor uh, past the guard dogs of the Department of Education. Uh, not so easy to do. but uh, would the Department of Education, to say theoretically, stand in the way if, uh, say, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri decided to jointly uh, say no to the uh, uh, established accreditors? We want one of our own. Uh, they certainly weren't. are not going to put themselves in the position of denying the students in those states access to Title IV student loans. Uh, just as the uh, accreditation system currently gets its power by being the uh, gatekeeper for student financial aid, and for that matter, uh, uh, federal research money, uh, that could be turned around. The The government isn't going to uh, suddenly impoverish some major part of the country by saying, uh, Uh, we're cutting off your funds because you're not sufficiently anti-racist. So that's that's one way you might get out of this. You know, the other option would be to just say, uh, like Hillsdale, keep your uh, federal student loans. We'll find some other way to finance the students. Uh, We don't need your accreditation. Uh, Well, that's a really tough, row for a university to hold. No big university has tried it. Uh, but again, it's, theoretically,
0: it's a way out of it. I wonder if if a reimagining of, of the structure of higher education could lower costs enough that that wouldn't be a factor, the tuition could get low enough that it would be realistic that people could pay for it out of pocket.
1: Right. Well, there's a kind of a libertarian escape hatch, uh, uh, or a Peter Thiel escape hatch, where you, you say, the credentials offered by the accredited universities really aren't worth that much. What we want to have is uh, uh, some reasonably reliable documentation that an individual has learned some stuff. I, I've been uh, jawboning this idea for quite a while. I think I even preceded Charles Murray on it, that that to become a, a certified public accountant in this country, you have to take a test. It's a really demanding test. A lot of people don't pass it. So how you prepare for that test? Well, you could sit on a desert island reading accounting books and then take the test and become a certified public accountant. The same thing in principle is true in any field that has a a meaningful core of of knowledge that could be systematized sufficiently to be tested. Uh, That uh, would provide a complete end run around current higher education system. An end run with some cost. Let's let's say uh, the guy on the desert island studying accounting books is probably not going to get anything like a rounded education that includes uh, Plutarch and Shakespeare or 19th century history. Um, you would ideal that anyway. Yeah, that's that's the counter to the counter, that you're not getting it anyway. So you're not going to lose very much. Um, the the ideal, I suppose, would be that you uh, you modularize education in a fashion we call it uh, badging, where uh, I can take a professional level exam in the field where I want to be recognized as a, as a civil engineer or maybe as a teacher of English composition. But uh, I also really desire to be an educated person. And I want to go out and earn my merit badge on the History plays of Shakespeare or the philosophy of Spinoza, and add that to my list as well. Um, there's no reason in principle that it couldn't be done. Um, there is the practical reason that uh, scaling it and making it acceptable to the general public would be darn difficult. Uh, the, the watchdogs in the uh, personnel offices, major corporations. Uh, have no idea what to do with it. They're they're examining a uh, uh, an applicant's CV to make sure they've taken the right number of social justice courses before you can get a job at, at IBM. Uh, we'd have to find a way to reach the uh, managers and executives at the companies that do hiring to to make this work. And of course. Most of them have now been compromised by the bad educations that they've had out of colleges as well. I, you get me on this subject, I begin to sound like a doomsayer. So let me immediately say that uh, while I um, I surely understand what the doomsaying is all about, uh, I also am kind of basically optimistic. I think that to the extent that the left ruins an institution. It also creates an opportunity for other institutions to arise. I can't wish those other institutions into existence. Uh, The the creative destruction of the marketplace has to kick in at some point. Uh, Entrepreneurs willing to risk money behind alternative ventures have to show up and start doing their thing. Well, in some cases, they are starting up. But what we want here is a kind of education that can reach the large number of people who want to attend college and actually belong in college. Now, the last few years have seen uh, declining enrollments in higher education from a peak of around uh, 19 million to I think we're down to a little over 15 million. Uh, We're about halfway to where we need to go. We have to keep shrinking higher education uh, by getting the people who don't really belong there out. Oh, why don't you belong there? Well, some don't belong there because they're not smart enough to make use of the opportunity. A much larger number don't belong there because they're not interested in the opportunity. They're just going to college because that's what you do. Um, and then there are those who uh, were they sufficiently well-informed about both the economics of the situation and the opportunities Would realize they can do much better for themselves by pursuing uh, other alternatives. So this begins to sound like I'm just a snob and I don't want dumb people to go to college or something like that, but that's not the point. The point is that higher education is capable of doing some things really, really well, but it has to market itself to the people who are both capable and interested in doing that one thing really well. Um, And everybody else needs to have good opportunities to acquire the knowledge and skills they need. Uh, At one time, they could have gotten that, for the most part, through highly functioning high schools. We don't have highly functioning high schools anymore, so at least in the near term, we need capable uh, post-secondary education that uh, well trains the people who want to become Uh, airplane mechanics, uh, uh, air conditioner repairmen, uh, plumbers, uh, people capable of wiring or designing uh, integrated circuits now of the the latest microchips. None of that really requires that you get a college education. It does require that you get an education, but not a college education. So uh, that... uh, Sort of fits the picture of well, if we're going to move to a badging mode, we're going to mode if we're going to start teaching people the skills they need to get ahead in life, uh, it calls for a a really deep transformation of how we do education in this country, and I'm just talking about the post high school education. At some point, we're going to have to get serious about what we do with the uh, the first 17 years of a young person's life. Uh,
0: and this is as, uh, the, another thing about badging. I mean, you're the the president of um, the National Association of Scholars, and badging doesn't really produce scholars. Although I think that the the question is is like how many scholars does a nation need in the true sense? Um, And I think that this is part of what got us into this trouble is we don't need 19 million scholars probably. Um, So I, I won't take up much more of your time, although I could, Um, but uh, I guess I, I, I'm going to ask you to be a dreamer for a second, right? Um, If, if, if you had to imagine what the university, if it exists of, 2050 would look like say 30 years from now. What do you see I mean you've got a you've got a pretty good sense of the 35,000 foot view of higher ed and all of its interrelated workings. Um, you described it as uh, to some extent the entire system as kind of a house of cards. How near is the house of cards to collapse? Um, can the existing, uh, system of this, how much longer can it persist, uh, or is it going to collapse under its own weight at a certain point? Um, and what do you see, if you had to place a bet on what the, the, the sort of range of higher ed looks like, you know, 30 years down the road, what would you say?
1: Um, I was good friends with the late Ed DeLatra, a philosopher who has been the president of St. John's for some years who used to say that colleges die hard, and I think that's true. Uh, even those in dire financial shape managed to limp along from year to year and find loyal alumni to buy them out at the last moment. If you would think Hampshire College would be long gone by now uh, or a Sweetbriar, but no, they're still there. They have no rightful reason to be there, but they are. Uh, so I don't expect that the House of Cards is going to collapse in one big plump in uh, the next few years. I do think the decline in enrollment, now that it's begun, will continue. And we will see, a, uh, as Moody's uh, predicts, a, a general wiping out of the lower third of the uh, colleges and universities in the country. From it's your a mouth special, to
0: God's ears. Keep going.
1: It's especially hard to get rid of public colleges and universities because they have a political constituency to prop them up no matter how bad they get. But it would be a good idea if you know, legislatures started thinking about how can we preserve what's best in our system rather than how having branch campuses in every congressional district the state. Um, but you invited me to take a, a much longer view. So let me jump over the, the uh, the controlled burn of the next 10 years to a longer future in 2050. What I would like to see happen at that point is there to be uh, a number of uh, colleges, maybe not one in every state, but possibly one in every state, uh, that is much smaller than it is now, rather than being a factory that Uh, tries to educate everybody in everything, that has decided that there are some topics so essential to the future of a civilization that they have to be taught. And that there's some students who have that built-in desire for knowledge, a true thirst for learning, in which they would submit themselves to the arduous routine of spending four or maybe more years of their lives studying important books, and not just books, but of course, ideas, um, formula, I mean, learning learning the field of, of physics or learning chemistry or biology is just as difficult as learning humanities. And nowadays, of course, we think humanities is soft and not difficult at all, but to do it right, it's extraordinarily difficult. The social sciences, if they can survive the, uh, Carthaginian purge that's taking place right now have something to teach as well. Uh, my field of anthropology probably deserves to survive, but uh, not at anything like its current form. So in 2050, I think a, a renaissance of real learning has taken place. Uh, it involves uh, not millions of students a year, but maybe a few hundred thousand uh, who have devoted themselves to the life of the mind, and have teachers who are likewise not mere careerists, but people who see themselves as having a vocation or a calling to preserve this knowledge to the next generation as an obligation that we owe to the future, just as uh, the past has submitted it to us. Everybody else should be getting a decent education in the fields that matter, something like badging needs to catch on everywhere. That is, people should be able to learn the things they want to learn from teachers well-trained in those fields who have about them a, uh, an intellectual immune system that rejects any taint of ideology from any direction whatsoever. Uh, this should be education that is uh, uh, deeply technical, but not just technical. It has to have a polish in it that means that people come out of it not only knowing their field, but being literate, and numerate, and capable of operating in our uh, complex economy, assuming that we haven't all become uh, serfs of uh, China or Russia by that point. Uh, but uh, taking the optimistic view that we're still an independent, self-governing nation, that's uh, where I think it ought to go. Uh, getting from here to there is going to involve an immense amount of pain and disappointment. Uh, people aren't going to go quietly as they give up their dream of establishing socialist utopia uh, between the Atlantic and the Pacific. But uh, nonetheless, uh, if we are going to have a civilization worth keeping, that's what has to happen.
0: I think you're right. I've enjoyed our talk very much. Uh, Dr. Peter Wood, thank you so much for joining me. I think uh, anybody who listens to this will come away Uh, with a better understanding of how higher ed works and, and maybe the path forward. Thanks again.